You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Hey there, Midtown. Tim Olson here, one of our church planning candidates at our downtown church. Uh, If you're listening to this, then that means we have officially canceled gatherings for this Sunday, September 16th. Hope you guys are staying safe during the arrival of Hurricane Florence. Uh, While we aren't gathering together in person, we did want to go ahead and get some teaching out to you all as we continue to work through our sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to be teaching through the last part of chapter 3 and then into some of chapter 4 today. And that way your life group time can be a discussion of this content. And then next Sunday, September 23rd, Lord willing, we'll be back together gathering again and we can pick back up in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. But this morning we're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 18. So go ahead and grab a Bible or flip on over to your Bible app on your phone and go ahead and get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 18. What I'd love to do is pray for us before we dive in this morning. Lord, would you Be with our time. God, while we're separate and not gathered together as a church family, Lord, would you be with us? Would you watch over us? Would you protect us and everyone else who uh, is in the path of this hurricane? Would you keep us safe, protect us from flooding and winds and everything like that? Lord, as we're separated, would you still uh, bind our hearts together? Would you give us unity as a church family as we study your word together? Would you help our our life group times this week to be fruitful, centered on you and centered on, on your word and your gospel? Would you be with me as I teach through this content today. Probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. While you're getting there, I want to do a little bit of recap and set up for us real quick. So for the first three chapters of Corinthians so far, Paul has been going after the boasting and pride and division of the church at Corinth. He's been pushing back on their self-centeredness, and he's been calling them to unity. Now, if you've been with us throughout the beginning of this series so far, and you've been paying attention, you might notice this morning that Paul seems to be starting to repeat himself a little bit. The majority of what he writes in these verses are just another way of repeating what he's already said, just in slightly different language. And actually, if you read other parts of the New Testament, this is something Paul does in other letters he's written as well. So he'll write something and then he'll circle back around to it again. But each time I'll kind of add a little phrase here or there. Now, this is actually my preferred quote unquote discussion technique whenever talking with my wife, where I like to repeat the statement I just said over and over, but I'll add a little phrase or two to to emphasize and help clarify what I'm trying to say. I think it works great. She uh, may or may not have other opinions, but that's that's what Paul's doing here. He's circling back around, tying a bow on his arguments for why the Corinthian church should be unified, for why they shouldn't divide over which leaders they follow. But he's going to add a few things, a few arguments. And what he adds is actually going to be really, really helpful. So let's read it together and then we'll work back through it. First Corinthians chapter three, starting in verse 18, it says, then let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise for the wisdom of this world is folly with God for it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Chapter four, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. 
It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. You may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All right, so let's work through it together. Here we go. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. So the sense in which the Corinthians are thinking about themselves incorrectly. They're not, they're not seeing reality. They, they've deceived themselves. Keeps going. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So Paul has already addressed this in chapter 1, verse 18. He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So at the cross, we know that there's no room for self-exaltation. As long as someone thinks they're wise on their own, they will never understand their deep need for the gospel. Keep going, verse 19, for the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, any amount of wisdom you think you have, any amount of smarts you think you've obtained, any pride and self-deception that would have you think you are something that you're not, it's actually all folly with God. He's not surprised or outsmarted by you. You don't catch him off guard. See, God knows more than you and me and all of us. He knows everything that has happened, everything that is happening, everything that could happen, everything that will happen. God's not surprised by anything. He catches the wise in their craftiness because he knows their thoughts. You can't keep things hidden or secret from God. Skip down with me to to verse four. Sorry, chapter four, verse one. It says, this is how one should regard us. Paul, Apollo, Cephas, these leaders of the church, people are are fighting over and using to boast and puff themselves up. This is how Paul says they should be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul says, "My, my aim, my goal is to be thought of as a servant and as a steward, a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God, aka the gospel. So he's saying, Corinthians, I'm your servant. I gave two years of my life to you. I worked tirelessly day after day, building tents and preaching the gospel for you, training up leaders for you, praying constantly for you. And Apollos, he came along and he did the same. He labored for you and taught for you and worked hard for you. And and Cephas or Peter, you guessed it, he labored for you and worked for you and served for you. Because we loved Jesus and we wanted to serve Jesus and we wanted you to know the mysteries of God. We wanted you to believe and trust in the gospel. So we gave ourselves away so that you would be built up. He keeps going, verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So that's, that's Paul's aim. He says, if anyone is going to take on this role of steward or servant, their aim, their goal, the requirement is that they be found faithful. And this is important. So you have to, you have to get this. Paul's desire to be faithful It's actually a total contradiction to the desires of the Corinthians. So for the Corinthians, boasting about their wisdom, boasting and fighting over which leaders they follow, these were all ways for them to, in essence, puff out their chest. It was ways for them to say to those around them, hey, I matter. Look at how smart I am. Look at how wise I am. Look at who my leader is. Look at me. I matter. They didn't want to be viewed as faithful. They wanted to be viewed as important, as valuable, as justified and validated. It was a search for a declaration of, hey, you matter. Hey, you're doing a good job. Hey, you're worth it. 
You see, trying to measure up, trying to find value and worth and meaning, looking around for something or someone to validate or justify or affirm us is not something new that has come with the creation of social media or iPhones or the internet. So looking and searching for validation and worth and meaning and identity is not something unique to millennials. This has been a quest of the human heart from the very beginning. From the beginning, humans have been asking the question, do I matter? Do I have value? Do I have worth? In other words, how do I look at myself in the mirror and feel okay? We all have this deep gnawing down in our souls. Do I matter? How do I look myself in the mirror and feel okay? Don't just take my word for it, take Oprah's. So Oprah said in a speech a few years ago, she said there's a common denominator in the human experience that we all share. We all want to know that what we do and what we say and who we are matters. We want to be validated. And most people believe there are, there are two options to answering this longing, two options for answering the question of do I matter or do I have worth or value. So for some, they believe this, this validation or this meaning or this worth comes from other people. So they have a role maybe given by their family or by their group or by their society and meaning or identity or value comes from when they play into that role. So all validation is given by others. They need others to approve of them. They're asking questions like, am I respected? Do I have what it takes? Am I able to perform and do others notice and see my performance? Uh, typically, you see this show up more in traditional cultures. Not always, but a lot of the time it's more traditional cultures that have this sense of my validation, my worth, my meaning comes from others, me filling the role in my society. And these folks live or die based on the affirmation or criticism of others. So if someone affirms them or the work they did that day, everything is awesome. Everything is perfect. They feel meaningful and worthy and justified. But if, if someone criticizes them or their work, then everything's awful. And they instantly get deflated. And it doesn't work. So even if you get the approval or affirmation you were looking for from others, you're always going to need more. You'll always have to do something else to get more, but if you don't get the approval, if you don't get the affirmation, then you're going to be beaten down and want to give up. And I think as a society, by, by and large, we've noticed that living for the approval of others doesn't work. So what has happened largely throughout our society is that people have started rejecting it. And we would actually affirm that, that needing the approval of others, needing validation or worth from others, largely should be rejected. So biblically, there's actually a whole category for the idolatry or the worship of approval for needing others' approval so much that you'll do whatever it takes to please them or to hear validation from them or get them to like you or encourage you or affirm you. There's a whole biblical category for why we shouldn't worship or need or, or have our lives centered around the approval of others. But where we've actually gone wrong, where we've gone wrong in our modern culture is in how we thought it'd be fixed. We thought the answer to needing the approval of others was to forget about them and just approve of ourselves. And this has actually been just as harmful. I'll give, you, I'll give you two reasons why. So first, in trying to stop caring about the approval of others, we've actually stopped caring about others altogether. We've taken this idea too far. So in trying to find freedom from needing affirmation and approval of others, we've thought the easiest way was to just stop caring about the feelings of others altogether. And so we, we try to go our own way and make our own decisions, right? So who cares if it hurts other people? I can't think about them. I have to think about myself. And so we, think, so we say things like, I don't care about the approval of my parents or my life group or my pastors or my friends when, when really we just don't care about them at all. And it's, it can be subliminal. So it can be uh, in the back of our minds. We might not even know or realize that we're doing it. So what happens is we, we say things like, oh, I'm just being authentic when really we're just being mean. We're just being 
jerks and we, and we justify it under the umbrella of how unhealthy it is to live for others' approval, when in reality we've swung too far. We've stopped caring about them altogether. But there's another way, way our reaction has been harmful. So in trying to stop caring about the approval of others, we thought the answer was just approving of ourselves or what is often called high self-esteem. Now, instead of society or my family or those around me deciding my role and expectations and standards and meaning and worth, now I get to define all of those things for myself. Now, what's important is is setting my own expectations and meeting those, being true to myself, being the best version of me. My worth and value comes from me and my ability to fulfill my own expectations. I have to be true to myself and follow my heart and make sure I approve of me. And so we've told ourselves things like, hey, every morning when you wake up, look in the mirror and affirm everything good about yourself. Or when you become anxious or overwhelmed or feeling down, repeat 10 times, I adore myself. I adore myself. I adore myself. Or have created sayings like, you do you, which I don't even fully know what that means. The problem is that it doesn't work either. High self-esteem hasn't actually worked for us or our society. I'm actually uh, backed up by research here, so this isn't just my opinion. Uh, There was a study done about 15 years ago uh, that found that students who scored themselves highly during a self-assessment part of an exam actually did worse on the test than those who scored themselves lower. So those who had high self-esteem, who felt good about themselves, who felt like they did well, actually did worse than those who didn't feel like they did well. Uh, There was another another study done a few years later that found that men who said they had high self-esteem were actually more likely to demean or belittle or abuse others. There's actually men who had high self-esteem who were more likely to demean or abuse or belittle others. Because what happens when we start pushing and orienting everything around building high self-esteem, what happens is is one of three things. Either we buy into it fully and we become puffed up and conceited and self-deceived and puffed up people ruin relationships. They walk around entitled and they stomp on people. So we either buy into it fully and we become puffed up and we stomp on people or we reject other standards for for ourselves and we we put up our own standards. But then we fail to live up to our own self-given standards and with that comes all of this anxiety and depression. Or the third option is that we lower our standards, which I don't need to, to tell you isn't a good alternative. And none of it is working or fixing or solving this underlying desire that we all have to know if we matter or if we're worth it or if we're validated, or if we're justified. None of this actually helps us look in the mirror and answer the question, am I okay? The approval of others and the approval of self doesn't actually help us. You see, what we're we're really talking about in all of this, what's really going on under the surface is pride. So we often think of pride as the person who walks around with their, their shoulders back and their chest puffed out, kind of looking down their nose at people, right? This person who's prideful always has to one-up people or have the last word or tell the best story or have the best joke, stomping on people and having no awareness of themselves. But the reality is pride doesn't just have to be the person who feels or appears like they have it all together. Self-deprecation or self-loathing can actually be pride too, because in reality, pride encompasses all self-fixation. Let me say that again. Pride encompasses all self-fixation. Pride, as as scripture talks about it, is being self-consumed or self-absorbed. 
So it's going on when we either look around at others or, or look internally at ourselves and wonder over and over again, do I matter? Am I worth it? Am I justified or validated? It's, it's actually all ways of being self-consumed and self-absorbed. It's me, me, me. Do I matter? Am I worth it? And we, we actually miss the freedom that is offered to us by the gospel. We miss the freedom that the gospel gives us. And so what Paul's going to do here in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, he's going to step in and he's actually going to offer us a third way. He's going to offer us an alternative. That we don't have to look for approval or validation or worth from others, but that, that doesn't mean we turn around and look for it within ourselves. There's actually a better way than both of these. So let's look at it together. Verse 3, chapter 4. Paul writes, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So verse 2, Paul says, As a servant, I want to be found faithful. And then immediately he wholeheartedly rejects having to live for the approval or validation or affirmation of the Corinthians. In essence, Paul's saying, I want to be faithful, but you're not the one who decides that for me. You're not the one who decides if I'm actually faithful or not. So no doubt people in the church of Corinth who were following Apollos or Cephas were, were probably judging Paul. They're probably saying things like, well, he wasn't a very good teacher anyways. Or, well, didn't he leave and abandon us? Or, well, he was always so harsh with his tone. And there were also probably others who were raving about him and, and talking him up, raving about how he planted the church and led people to Jesus, boasting about who he had baptized or that he was an apostle, so on and, and so forth. And Paul says, I don't care. I don't care about how you judge me. I don't care about what standards you want to put on me. I don't care about opinions or gossip you want to spread. That's empty to me. I don't find my identity or worth from it. I'm not brought up or brought down by what you guys are saying about me. I just don't care. And notice the, the language that he uses. I think this is really fascinating. He says, judged, right? It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So in essence, Paul's saying, hey, Corinthians, I'm not in your courtroom. You're not the, the judge or the jury in my life. You don't make the final verdict over my identity. I'm not on trial and I don't have to plead my case before you. But remember, Paul was a servant for the Corinthians. He, he gave his life away for them. He labored day in and day out. He served them. He gave up years and years of his life for them, working during the day and preaching and teaching at night. So he's not in their courtroom. Right? They don't get to make the final verdict on his worth and value, but yet he still loves them deeply. And he still defers to their needs. And he still gives himself for their good and their growth in the faith. Not caring about their approval or affirmation doesn't mean he stopped caring about them. You see, we don't live for the approval of others, but we do leverage our lives to serve them and to care for them more than ourselves. The posture of the gospel is I will serve and bless and defer whether you see it or not, whether you respond or not, whether you like me and give me positive affirmation or not, you can be my enemy and I'll still love you and serve you and care for you. Paul, Paul wholeheartedly rejects living for the approval and affirmation of others. But he keeps going. He's also going to reject living for the approval and affirmation of himself. So keep reading verse 3. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. So he says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge Myself. So he's saying, say whatever you want about me. I don't, I don't care. I don't care about your approval. I don't care about your, your standard or your judgment or your critique. And, and every modern American, American in 2018 says, yes, Paul, you do you. Be your own person. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. I don't even judge myself. 
I don't care what you think about me, and I don't really care what I think about me. I'm not in your courtroom, and I'm not in my courtroom. You're not the judge or the jury, but I'm also not the judge or the jury. Because the remedy for not living or dying by others' standards is not to quit caring about others altogether, and it's also not to set our own standards or be our own person or have higher self-esteem. Because just like others don't have the power to validate us or give us worth or value or meaning, we don't have that power to declare that over ourselves. We don't have the power to validate ourselves. We don't have the power to give ourselves meaning or value or worth on our own. The answer to your problems and sin and struggles in your life is not higher self-esteem. It's not feeling better about yourself. It's not looking in the mirror and repeating 10 times, I adore me, I adore me, I adore me. So Paul doesn't go to the Corinthians looking for worth or value or self-esteem, but he also doesn't go internal. He doesn't look to himself to get value or worth or self-esteem. He keeps going, verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. This is really interesting what he does here. He says, in other words, even if I was my own judge and jury, and even if I found myself innocent, that wouldn't mean I am innocent. Catch that. Even if I was my own judge and jury, and even if I declared myself innocent, that wouldn't mean that I'm actually innocent. I don't have that ability. Paul's saying my own conscience can't justify me. I wish we had time to do a whole sermon on this. I can't. I don't have time, but real quick, uh, some of us need to hear this. Some of us are living in blatant, outright sin right now, and we've justified it. We've justified it in our heads, and we think, because I don't feel guilty or convicted, it must not be wrong. When actually our consciences are seared, and we've actually quenched the Holy Spirit in our lives. Just because you don't feel convicted about something doesn't mean you're innocent. We don't justify ourselves based on our own feelings. We don't declare ourselves faithful and innocent. We don't have that ability. As Paul says, even though we're not aware of anything against ourselves, that doesn't mean we're acquitted. That doesn't mean we're innocent. All right, back to it. So the question becomes who? Who judges Paul? Who gives the final verdict on Paul's value and worth? Who tells Paul he's worth it? Who tells any of us that we're worth it, that we're valuable? If it's not others, if it's not ourselves, who is it? Keep reading verse 4. Paul says, it is the Lord who judges me. So Paul is not in the courtroom of Corinth, as if others would give him worth or value. But he's also not in the courtroom of Paul, as if he just has to look inside himself to find purpose or, me or meaning. Paul is in the courtroom of God. In his courtroom, God's courtroom is the only one where God is judge, jury, lawyer, and defendant. You see, the good news of the gospel is that we no longer have to be on the defendant's seat because Jesus stood there for us. Jesus on the cross took our sin, our shame, our guilt, our punishment upon himself. He stood in our place and was declared guilty so that we could stand and be declared righteous. 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus stood in our place. The Bible says he took our sins and paid the penalty for them. Our sins made us indebted to God with a debt that we could not pay. And yet Christ's blood shed for us on the cross paid that debt. 
Now, Scripture says he was not only in our place as defendant in his death on the cross, but three days later he rose again, and now he is at the right hand of God. And look at what Romans 8 says he is doing. Right. So 1 John says he's our advocate. Romans 8 verse 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God. Look at this. Who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is at the right hand of of God interceding, pleading, defending, standing between on our behalf. So we don't have to be stuck in the courtroom of others where we live and die based on what others think about us, if we've received encouragement or criticism that day, if we're accepted or included, invited in or loved. We don't have to wake up each and every morning on shaky ground wondering if our performance will end in a good verdict. We're free to give of ourselves and give of our lives to serve others instead of needing and taking. So we don't have to be in the stuck, stuck in the courtroom of others, but we also don't have to be stuck in the courtroom of self. We try to calm anxiety in our souls by telling ourselves over and over again, I'm good enough, I'm good enough, I'm good enough. We don't have to wake up every morning on shaky ground wondering if our performance will end in a good verdict. We don't have to wake up on shaky ground because Christ is the offer of solid rock. He has lived the life we failed to live. He has succeeded in every way we cannot. Jesus has made a way for you and I to stop living in the rat race of identity seeking or approval searching, of of endless turmoil, asking and wondering and hoping, do I measure up? Am I enough? Am I good enough? Because the answer of the gospel is no. None of us measure up. None of us are good enough, but that's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus still loves us, that he still pursues us, that Jesus saw that we didn't measure up and that we weren't good enough, and yet he still died and rose again for us. Not because we're anything special, but because of his grace and his love and his mercy. So all of us who trust in Jesus, all of us who look at the cross of Christ, who, who look at the empty tomb and say, I believe in Jesus. I trust his death and resurrection is what makes me right with God. I believe Jesus' blood is what gives me forgiveness of sins. When God looks at us, the Bible says he actually sees Christ's righteousness. Jesus stands in our place. He stands between us and God interceding and pleading and defending on our behalf. So the invitation to all of us this morning is to take yourself out of the courtroom of others and self and to live in the freedom of God's courtroom. You see, we we think humility is thinking less of ourselves. We think humility is being self-deprecating or degrading. When that's that's not actually the picture the Bible paints of humility at all. The Bible actually says that a true gospel-centered humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but it's actually thinking about ourselves less. Here's how C.S. Lewis writes about it in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I love that ending. He will not be thinking about humility. He will actually not be thinking about himself at all. True gospel humility. The way towards freedom from always waking up on shaky ground. 
the way towards looking ourselves in the mirror and saying we're okay is learning to put to death our desire to be center stage. Our desire to be constantly fixated or absorbed with ourselves. Gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused humility takes us off the center of our lives. It recognizes that the universe doesn't spin around me. The universe doesn't hold together because of me. Everything around me wasn't created for me. It was created for God. God is the center. That's what Paul is saying in those verses we skipped over earlier in chapter 3. So verses 21 through 23, chapter 3, look back with me. Paul says, let no one boast in men. Let no one be puffed up. Let no one be prideful. Let no one boast in who they follow. Let no one boast in who they are. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or or Cephas or the world or life or death or or the present or the future, all are yours. But don't miss 23. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. All things are yours. Look at what is available for you. Look at what is available to serve you. Paul and Apollos and Cephas, the the world, life, death, the present, the future, they're all yours. As a Christian, all of these things exist to serve you. All are yours, but why? Don't miss it. Verse 23, because you are Christ and Christ is God's. All of these things exist to serve you because they exist to serve Jesus and you are hidden in Jesus. You, if you you trust in Christ, the Bible says you are united to Him. You have union with Him. You are a co-heir with Him. So a truly gospel, humble person doesn't live or die by the approval of others. But in rejecting this, they also don't run towards the approval of self. They don't live or die by what others say, and they don't live or die by what they say about themselves because they are rooted in, and they have a firm awareness of God's approval and God's love, and God's grace, and God's forgiveness, and God's mercy. So there's an offer for us of freedom in Jesus. That we can live freely in God's courtroom where, where Jesus stands as our defendant and as our lawyer. Where God has declared us because of the cross one time and for all righteous and holy and pure and justified for all who trust in him. It's an offer of freedom in Jesus. And in that offer, in that good news of the gospel is where we actually find true worth. It's where we actually find value. We don't find value or worth or meaning or identity by looking at others or by looking at ourselves, we find it in Jesus and what he says about us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Jesus on the cross. Thank you for what that means for us. Thank you that he took on the role of defendant and heard guilty and stood in our place, took your wrath and your judgment and your punishment so that we could stand and hear righteous and forgiven and son and daughter of God. Would you help us to live out of that true identity today? If we don't believe it, if we don't own it for ourselves, would you help us put our faith and our trust in you? Would you help us claim Jesus on the cross on our behalf? Would you help us to trust in you and put our faith in you to to claim Jesus as Savior and Lord? 
Would you remind us if we need to be reminded of our, of our identity, which comes from you, doesn't come from other people, it doesn't come from ourselves. We don't justify ourselves or validate ourselves. Our consciences don't clear us. Our own hearts can't call us forgiven. God, only you can do that. Only you can speak that over us. Only you can say that we are forgiven and justified and, and pure and holy and righteous. Would you help us to be reminded of that this week? Would you help us to be reminded of how much you love us and what you say over us? We love you. Thank you for your word, which can convicts and challenges and encourages. Probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen.